turn with me for our ongoing study in Paul's epistle to the Philippians. We are in Philippians chapter 1. I refer you to verses 8 through 11. Philippians chapter 1, beginning at verse 8, Philippians 1, Paul says, For God is my witness, how I long for you all with the affection of Christ Jesus. And this I pray, that your love may abound still more and more in real knowledge and all discernment, so that you may approve the things that are excellent in order to be sincere and blameless until the day of Christ, having been filled with the fruit of righteousness, which comes through Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of God. It was my privilege during my growing up years to live near the banks of the great Delaware River. It drew a line between us in New Jersey as we lived in the shadow of the city of brotherly love, Philadelphia. Spanning the river was the wonderful, still is there, old Benjamin Franklin Bridge. When leaving the historic district around Independence Hall, crossing over the Ben Franklin, I always enjoyed looking down on the aging city of Camden, New Jersey, right there at the river's bank. Now that city was home to two American icons, if you will. There was the Campbell Soup Company. Uh, You could at times crossing the bridge actually smell the cream of tomato soup steaming into thousands of those little red cans. But I especially enjoyed the sight of the rather tall and stately red brick building that housed, at that time, the RCA Victor Record Company. And there, at the peak of their edifice, was the image of a dog sitting in front of an old-time gramophone, head cocked slightly to one side, listening to the sound. That scene was actually taken from a painting by English artist Francis Barad. The dog, Nipper, had been owned by Barad's brother, who had recorded his own voice on early phonograph records. And after the brother died, the artist Barad inherited Nipper and the gramophone and the records. Whenever the records with Nipper's master's voice were played, the little dog would sit in front of the gramophone listening to his master's voice. I think that's rather a beautiful image of the relationship that we are meant to have between Jesus Christ and ourselves. Think about this. He has gone away from earth, at least in his physical presence. There are none, though some may claim, who can hear his physical voice. But what do we do? We sit in front of his word 
we come to him in prayer and we listen for our master's voice. I shall be greatly pleased and more than a little humbled should some of you in the course of the preaching this morning cock your heads and acknowledge that in the word of God we really do hear our master's voice. Oh, that we would be eager to hear and ready to obey. So let us pray. Father, your Son and our Savior prayed that you would be pleased to set us apart from an unbelieving world, that you would sanctify us by your truth. As he said to you, thy word is truth. And so, Lord, we have the Holy Scriptures opened before us. And by your Holy Spirit, we ask, open our eyes of understanding to behold wonderful things in this word. To hear your voice speaking love and life into our very souls, we pray in Jesus, our Master's name. Amen. Now, I made mention last Lord's Day that this epistle of the Apostle Paul to the Philippians is really a love letter from the heart. I think of all of Paul's letters. There are 13. I tend to think there are 14, if you believe that he wrote the epistle to the Hebrews. Out of those 14 letters, it is this letter to the flock of God's people at Philippi that I think reveals the most vulnerable, the most sensitive and tender side of this great apostle's heart. Look with me at verse 8. It is as though his innermost being trembles. Uh, The language here is intensely emotional. I invite you to read that verse in the King James Version sometime. Uh, My very literal rendering says this, For God is my witness, how I long for you all with the affection of Christ Jesus. These are strong expressions. For God is my witness. As if to say, it is the truth, it is the whole truth, And nothing but the truth, so help me God. What Paul says here, I think, is also a very instructive phrase for both the Philippians and us. Paul is saying, employing a Greek word uh, that could be interpreted as an eyewitness. When he says, God is my witness, he's saying God is an eyewitness as though in a court of law. To say that God is my witness means that God apparently searches the hearts of his people. Even more than he would look upon their outward works. He's always concerned to see what motives, right, are operating in the heart. The motives behind any of our external actions, whether they be good or bad. It is the heart that he examines. And the scriptures tell us that God keeps the books. 
and what he's taking stock of when he takes an inventory of the hearts of his redeemed. He is looking for love in the heart. We trust that he finds it and that he finds more and more of it as Paul is asking the Lord to do this work in them. I was reading some of the works of theologian Dan Allender in his book entitled uh, Bold Love, Bold Love this week. I'd like to share one of his worthy paragraphs with you, so I quote, The inescapable biblical teaching in both Old and New Testament is that love is unquestionably the highest calling a person can pursue. Love is the fulfillment of the law. Jesus shocked his theologically well-versed brethren by summarizing the law in just two commandments. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind, and with all your strength. And love your neighbor as yourself. He then stated, that is Jesus, that there is no commandment greater than those two. In one breath, Allender says, he, Christ, placed love above tradition and all of the religious systems of that day and our day and brought, literally, all the commandments of God into alignment under the majesty of love. Allender went on to say in a very personal way, he, he was giving a personal testimony at this point, as an accomplished uh, Bible theologian, as an accomplished writer, as an accomplished, much-in-demand speaker and teacher, he said this in a very personal way, love is the measure by which my life will be assessed by God. If I am judged on how I love and not on how many books I sell, seminars I give, or people I counsel, then at one level, he says, it does not really matter if I write books, teach, preach, or counsel. It matters only if I do those things out of a heart-motivated by love. In fact, it sounds a little like the beginnings of 1 Corinthians 13, doesn't it? The Apostle Paul says, if I could speak with the tongues of angels, if I could offer my body a sacrifice, but do not have love, it is worth nothing. Or as Paul has said here, God is my witness. He is judging me, and you Philippians should feel free to do the same on this matter. How much I love you. How I long for your welfare, he says. Know this, he says, and we must not miss uh, this lest we be discouraged by our efforts at loving the way we should. He says, I long for you all with the affection, but here's the key, of Christ Jesus. Because in the very next verse, Paul will tell them that they are to love more and more. But he would have them know that this quality of love, the word here, of course, is agape love, 
is not something inherently natural to us. It is the love of God poured out into our hearts by the Holy Spirit. Paul knows that it is the love of Christ which constrains him to love and long for these fellow believers. Let's remember then that God is keeping a record. He is an eyewitness to the motives of your heart and mine. And he's looking every day of our lives for the evidence of Christ's love both in us and flowing through us. It's Paul who does the longing for them. Indeed, it is Paul who is loving them, but he would not have them know otherwise than it is in Christ Jesus or because Christ's love is in his heart working on their behalf. Now, back in verse 4, we're looked at that already in previous messages, but back in verse 4, you'll remember that Paul said he was always praying for them. And he said, and his prayers were always joy-filled prayers as he thanked God for the ongoing work of the Holy Spirit in their lives. And so it's one thing to say to someone, I'm always praying for you, and whenever I do, it gives me joy. But here, now, in verse 9... We learn what specific things Paul was asking the Lord to do in their lives. I was thinking this week, I may pull this the next time someone so graciously, and I love to hear this, says to me, Pastor, I'm praying for you. I think I just might take a note from Paul and ask them just what is it that they are specifically asking God to do in and through me. Be a good question. Note that the all-important issue here is, once again, their love life. He has said, I'm praying for you. Now he's going to tell them what he's been praying. He says, I pray that your love may abound more and more. The apostle knows that this is, as we've said, God's measuring rod for assessing their spiritual maturity. You know, I think uh, if I received an email, for example, from a close friend, and they said they were praying for me, as I mentioned a moment ago. Obviously, if it was you, if it were me, we'd feel pretty good about that. But then again, if they said, yes, I'm praying for you, Jim, that you would be more loving, more and more, abounding more and more in love. I uh, have to be honest. I think it would take a measure of humility for me at that point not to get a bit defensive. Am I not already loving enough? (laughs) The answer is, of course, until I love others the way and to the degree that Christ loves me, then I have some more loving to learn and a whole lot more love to give. Do you see that? How about you? I trust that as a believer, you are a loving person. And uh, I would say to you, keep at it. In fact, 
I pray that you would abound and love more and more because none of us have attained to the depth and the wonder and the degree for what it was to love enemies as Christ loved us, his enemies. While we were still in our sins, while we were yet enemies, his love was expressed in the extreme in laying down his life for us. So we can grow in this, can't we? We too can pray, Lord, uh, I think I'm a loving person, and I know it's from you, but I understand I haven't even begun to abound to love, as Paul says here, more and more. So many years ago, the godly Elizabeth Prentice expressed it well on our behalf. Do you remember? If you do, join me with this for a moment. More love to thee, O Christ, more love to thee. Hear thou the prayer I make on bended This is my earnest plea, more love, O Christ, to Thee, more love to Thee, more love to Thee. The Apostle knows that our love for one another can grow no further than our love for Christ. It is not that we loved him first, always remember that, but that he loved us. Paul is saying that Christ could not love us more, but that you and I can love more, even as we receive fresh supplies from him. And we must not neglect either the vital importance of what follows this petition that Paul makes that we love more and more. The last phrase in verse 9 is absolutely essential. He writes, and this I pray, that your love may abound still more and more. But notice, in real knowledge and all discernment. Love in real knowledge and all discernment. Now, this is what I've called love's wisdom. This love, agape love, is, of course, from God himself. It transcends all other human loves as deep and as potent as those human loves may be. There's the love of spouse. There's the undying love of a mother for her child. There's love of family, friend, or neighbor. All of these are human experiences, and they can be understood by people even outside of God's grace. But this love, this agape love is frankly beyond full comprehension. It is a love rooted and never separated from all the other attributes of God himself. That is, to say that God is love is to say that everything God is, is love. If God is 
all-powerful, and he is, then his love experienced is powerfully transforming. If God is holy, righteous, and just, his love will always be characterized by holy, righteous, and just actions on behalf of his children. God's love is like, well, God himself. That's why his love is a faithful love. It never fails. It's why his love is never permissive, but in fact corrective. Loving us requires, as you know, his discipline in our lives. In fact, it's one of the proofs that we really are his children. He loves us too much to leave us the way he finds us on any given day. Sometimes I know in my life he demonstrates what you might call even a tough love. But note in particular these two characteristics of agape love that Paul believes you and I must have if we are to love in the right way and to do it more and more, as he says. He says it will take knowledge and all discernment. And the King James Version renders this knowledge and in all judgment. Love that way. The New International Version says knowledge and depth of insight. I like that. The original Greek term used for knowledge here is very helpful to us. It is a two-part word. It is the word gnosis, which means simply to know something, to have some facts. We all know what it is to have a physician pick and probe at us, to take samples of our blood sometimes and to examine it, uh, to take uh, amazing pictures of what's inside of us, and eventually after all of that to come up with what, folks? A diagnosis. The Greek word gnosis means to know something. Now, uh, the doctor gathers the data. His senses lead him to a knowledge of the causes for your physical malady. Now, the word of the Holy Spirit supplies here is the word gnosis, but I have to tell you, it does not have this prefix dia or diagnosis. Instead, if you had a Greek Bible open before you and you could read what Paul actually wrote as led by the Holy Spirit, he would say, I want you to learn how to love more and more in epignosis, not diagnosis, but epignosis. In this case, the prefix means literally above or from above. So for our love to be more and more like God's love, it must be an informed love, a love that is shaped and influenced by the knowledge that comes down from above. Not a love that is governed by diagnosis, which is by the senses, by that which you feel, by that which you can touch, by that 
which you can experience in your world. That is a wonderful knowledge to gain, but it's not what Paul's talking about here. He's talking about epinosis, a knowledge that could only come down from above. Just as agape love is uniquely found only in God and only in his redeemed, so this knowledge comes only to those who have his Holy Spirit. Epinosis. You know that James in his epistle says we should pray for this kind of wisdom. I think this is what Paul was praying for the Philippians. James says, pray for that wisdom which comes down from above, epinosis, which is pure and peaceable, he says, in its characteristics. Loving with knowledge, loving with an epinosis, a wisdom that God has given from above. Now, let's be clear that what the biblical authors, I've mentioned two now, Paul and James, are saying. If they were speaking right now in our present day, they'd take a shortcut with us folks. They would tell us that when we ask God to send us that wisdom, that knowledge from above, the very next thing they would say to do simply is to open God's word. God's knowledge and wisdom has come down from above. And I'll quote scripture here. As holy men of old, moved by the Holy Spirit, wrote down God's knowledge. This is where the knowledge and wisdom is to be found. What more can he say? Then to you he has already said. I wonder if you really believe that the Bible is sufficient to address every single issue in your life. Some of you, mistakenly, perhaps well motivated, could be waiting to get a word from God some other place in some other way. But God has already given to us, he says here, everything necessary for life and for godliness. I love the way the Hebrew poet put it back in the 19th chapter of the Psalms. The law of the Lord, the word of the Lord is perfect, restoring the soul. The word or the testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. The precept or the word of the Lord is right, rejoicing the heart. The word of the Lord or the commandment of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes. It's sort of like when the light bulb goes on and you say, oh, I understand. That comes from God's word. The judgments of the Lord are true. They are righteous. They can't be more right. They're righteous altogether. And the psalmist says, why, once you've gotten... This understanding, this word of God is more desirable than gold, than much fine gold and sweet. How sweet it is, Jackie Gleason might say. The psalmist says, sweeter also than honey and the drippings of the honeycomb. And then the psalmist says, moreover, by this word, by them, your servant is warned. In keeping them, there is great reward. And Paul is praying that these Christians would abound in love more and more. And what he knows is, if they are to love that way, 
they will need God's word. Real knowledge. Agape love must be biblically informed. Only when we are thinking and acting biblically are we capable of loving God's way. All too often professing Christians today, frankly, in their relationships, even in the church of Jesus Christ, are flying more by the seat of their pants or what seems right to them than they are having a mind that has been shaped and molded by the truth of God's word. Paul says, I want you to love more and more, but not the way you think you should. I want you to love in knowledge and in all discernment. The second part of that couplet is knowledge and all discernment, depth of insight. This is the faithful believer's heritage, by the way. This privilege comes with salvation, but it doesn't come automatically. When the psalmist gave himself to the study of God's word, he came to see, as he says in another place, that he suddenly had more wisdom than all of his teachers. Now let me suggest that here at the beginning of a new school year, this is an interesting word for our high school and college students, all of us. All worldly knowledge, even great scientific expertise, they have their place. But only the biblically informed child of God can draw the right conclusions about life itself. Some of the most brilliant minds under the sun, some of the most scientific minds under the sun, can explain the orbits and can look at human life but draw the wrong conclusions. The best they can do is some kind of big explosion. The best they can do to describe human life is that we are up from the swamps somehow. Only the believer has more wisdom than all those kinds of teachers. It is seeing the world through the lens of Scripture It is understanding the times that we live in because the Bible, as old a book as it is, is fresher than the headlines of your Sunday newspaper. Just this very week, I had very well-meaning, very sincere, heart-searching, professing two believers hold up before my face two books, religious in nature, and asked me what I thought. And after all, they said, these have been on the top of the New York Times religious and even secular bestseller list. And I knew the authors of the books. I knew about their teaching. And and I thought they were asking me for an honest response. And I said, well, I know that person. And I know that person. I know a little about that book. I know that these two books have sold millions of copies. I know that it has sat at the top of the New York Times bestseller list. But I have to tell you, There's only about 50% of what you find between those covers that even comes close to what the Bible actually teaches. So beware. Paul says, I want you to love, but it'll take this knowledge which comes down from above, and it will take a discernment that you can only get with a biblically saturated mind. Then you'll begin to learn to love as God loves. 
I think Hebrews 5.14, you don't have to turn there, I'll read it for you. It's probably the best commentary on Philippians 1.9 when it says this. Solid food, we would say the meat of God's word, is for the mature, who, because of practice, the practice of this, to think and to act biblically, because of practice, have their senses trained to discern good and evil. And I'd say, my friends, as I observe, if there's one missing jewel in the hearts and the minds of many professing believers today, it is that we seem to have in our generation so very little discernment. I wished I could have taken those two books that were held up before my face and said, let me take these here, you keep my Bible. So where are we? The apostle has told us to love more and more. He knows that it will take more and more knowledge of God's word, giving to the child of God more and more discernment, so that, we come to verse 10, so that you may approve the things that are excellent in order to be sincere and blameless until the day of Christ. First, learning to think biblically, which leads to acting biblically. Improve the things that are excellent. The more literal meaning of the term excellent here, by the way, is the word value. Oh, that we would know what has true value. And I'm not talking about the hardware store here. That we would be able to distinguish between what has lesser value or what has no value at all over against the greatest of values. And I have to tell you, we will never get this on our own. We need the Creator Himself to tell us in His Word, and He does, what has real value. And every time He has told us it is those things that relate to eternity and not so much the things of earth. And we get it exactly turned around. We're glad to have an assurance policy for the end of life, and we'll at that time have some interest in talking about heaven. But for now, our lives are all about the things of earth. But I want you to notice here, Paul most deliberately mentions the second coming of Christ. He says, be sincere and blameless until the day of Christ. Loving more and more. Discovering truth that comes down from above. Becoming discerners of truth in a world full of lies. Think and act biblically so that you can approve those things that have true value, are excellent. So that you might be sincere and blameless until the day of Christ. So, thinking about heaven is not something for the end of the Christian life. It is something to be doing here and now before Christ comes again. I want you to, uh, as you sit here, I want you to hear the sweet lover of your soul whisper to your heart this morning, just for you. I want you to hear him saying, just to you, in a fresh way as though it's the first time you've ever heard it, Jesus, the lover of your soul, 
speaks and says, do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust will destroy, home invasions, thieves will break in and steal, and maybe even take your life today. But he pleads, lay up for yourself treasures in heaven for where your treasure is there will your heart be also seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness and all these things will be added to you he promises if he feeds the sparrows in that same text he says certainly you are of more value than that don't worry about those things get eternity's values in view. Now, finally, the capstone of all this in verse 11. Between now and the return of Christ, let it be said what it says here. That we, having been filled with the fruit of righteousness, which comes through Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of God. Now, that phrase, fruit of righteousness, reminds us that all these things, thank goodness, are not dependent upon our fleshly efforts or willpower but rather the fruit and the evidence that we are in fact living in vital union with Jesus Christ abide in me and I in you and you will bear fruit loving more and more knowing truth more and more having more and more godly sincerity putting our stamp on things that are excellent things of eternal value, living more and more sincerely before a world that has less and less for which to blame us. This, Paul says, comes through Jesus Christ to the glory and the praise of God. I want to get hooked up with him in all of this, don't you? I want to more intently abide and so learn to love and get that knowledge that comes down from him and a wisdom to discern so that I might live to the glory and the praise of God. I trust that's your prayer as well.